Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? My name is Rihanna Elise Anderson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health in the Health Behavior and Health Education Department, and I'm a third year assistant professor there. Can you share a little bit about the focus of your research? In a nutshell, I think about how we dropkick racism. So that's something I'm really thinking about and trying to act on. So we know that racism and discrimination negatively impacts the mental health and well-being of Black children and their families. We also know that there are things that we can do to intervene. So that's when we think about the direct relationship. How do we bend it? How do we break it? How do we start to erase it? Or again, in my case, how do we dropkick it from even existing? So that's what I, I think about, not just the empirical or the the on paper ways of doing it, but how do we actually apply it in a practical way out in our communities? And with that, your expertise and research focus in mind, obviously for the past year, COVID-19 has ravaged communities across the U.S. and Black communities have been disproportionately impacted by not only the virus, but also the mitigation measures that have been put in place to try and slow the spread. So this is obviously a huge issue that we can't cover in just one podcast episode, but can you dive a little bit into some of those health disparities that Black communities are facing? So what's really interesting to me is that the year of 2020 was such a a wave. So in March, when we first got hit with this realization that our lives were going to be interrupted, that there was gonna be a stop to our lives. And then we started seeing those numbers tick up in CNN or or Washington Post. And you you started to really think about this fabric of the United States as um, something that was being challenged. People were dying and and those numbers, the, the tick ups that you saw were part of this united front that we were so upset about, we were so saddened about, we, we couldn't believe was happening. And then in April, once you started seeing those racial disparities, that fabric started to unravel. It started to fray at the ends and we saw what's really been challenging to the fabric of the United States for hundreds of years, which is this disparate way that people are living. So I think, I think it's important, especially as a social scientist, for me to say that these numbers aren't just on paper, they're not just a bar graph. When you think about what it actually means to live a different life, when you think about what it means to go to different schools, have different opportunities, live in different homes, when you think about how the lived experiences of one's life would contribute to those disparities that we see in those numbers, it starts to clarify a bit how there could be a two or three fold increase on one side of eight mile in Detroit relative to their neighbors or one side of Alter relative to their neighbors. All of these spaces in Detroit where I was living, where I was hearing the sirens, I was seeing the lived experiences of folks and I was sick myself that you drive five miles down the street for and you don't see it. In fact, you see people with no masks laughing with friends and and playing with dogs. And it was a, a, a different world in that way divided by one major street or divided by by one thing that again was not by happenstance either. 
So when we think about all of these components that were woven into this fabric that's now starting to fray, again, you have a larger story. And that's what we started seeing in April. Why is it that black and brown people are, are contracting, are being treated differentially and are dying in different ways than each other. And it's not just because they're black or brown, it, it's that entire lived experience going up to that point. So that was April. And then in May, you saw that even though someone could make it through that experience, they could have contracted COVID, they could have made it out by the grace of God um, through those disparate treatment facilities that the endemic of racism, which is something that in America we have lived with through every step of having multiple groups inhabit this land, that racism, which was the thing that permeated the disparities that we saw because of COVID, so the agent that, that frayed the fabric in the first place, was now being the same thing that killed George Floyd, the weight of someone's knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds, exasperating George Floyd to his last breath. That is part of the same fabric, this, this, race, this racism that's just going and weaving throughout America. So I know I've been talking for quite some time, but, but what's really important to me there is that we have something that has contributed to those disparate numbers, those lived experiences, those things that neighbors can't understand if they're looking across the street, if they're driving the five miles, they can't understand how people are going through that experience. And yet there's an entire population that is, is being killed and is living in such a different way. And we saw that really rapidly devolve in the span of three months in 2020. So you, you know, you, you talked a lot about all of these disparities and um, you know, how racism has just been exacerbated. And I'm wondering if you can add anything about what contributes to these stark disparities. Like, it's not something that, you know, obviously just happened with COVID-19. So um, can you add anything about that? So when we think about what contributes to racial disparities and, and what racism even looks like, so the belief that certain groups have power and that other groups are oppressed is this, this fundamental thing that has driven the way policies and practices manifest for years. So if you believe, unfortunately, like Abraham Lincoln asserted at one point that there needs to be a group in power and there needs to be a group that's oppressed and that group that is in power can be white and the group that's oppressed is black. So when you, when you actually see the text of people who have said these things who hold power, whether that be hundreds of years ago or present day that have been asserted most recently, you can understand that the folks who hold power create systems by which folks that are oppressed are not able to get the loans, are not able to go to the schools, are not able to get the house, are not able to marry, are not able to do various things that they would want to do. So not having freedom, whether it be in a literal sense of being in shackled or being in a figurative sense of, of not being able to move the way one would want to move about in a society is the manifestation of racism. Like what it looks like to be able to, to not live the life that other people live 
not because of one's mindset, not because of any stereotype, but because of actual practice and policy that has come from centuries of practices, that, that's what we're talking about with racism. So again, in, in modern day times, how would that look? If I'm in a city that's more concentrated, that's dense, um, that has ways of transportation that are more reliant on buses or crowded systems. So if I'm in those areas and an airborne pathogen <laughs> comes about and we need to think about how do we, we move about when that virus comes into the cities that we weren't protected from in the first place that our administration didn't say to not be in the presence of, right? After having that information. So once being in those spaces where you are more densely populated, that's step one. If you are exposed to it and you're trying to get treatment and those facilities that you've gone to get treatment from don't have the resources, the wealth, the quality care that other spaces do, that's two. Once people look at you in those spaces and deem your life not worthy of, of being saved or treated or believe that you can tolerate pain more and so don't give you this, the type of treatment you would need relative to other people who they think are, are worthy of that treatment, that's step three. And then how we even think about it from the, the other side, if, if folks pass, the desire to change another person whose life may be valuable, right? So do we start to enact tougher policies and practices even when we see those disparities? Or do we shrug and say, that's what happens to those people? Those people needed to have acted differently and they didn't. That's all part of this pathway of, of racism that we saw clearly in the years 2020 and 2021. And how does all of this affect the mental health and overall well-being of African-Americans? So there are numbers that we can talk about and you're gonna hear me draw a distinction between numbers and, and lived experiences quite a bit today, but numbers are one way that we can look at it. So we know that in April of last year and in, in May when folks were starting to measure how stress, anxiety, and depression were captured for Black folks, we saw an exaggerated number such that from the same point one year prior to that, you have a threefold increase in stress, anxiety, and depression. So at the same period of time, one year prior, you're seeing an increase. But then what we saw within 2020, when you did a longitudinal approach, so instead of relative to a year before, if you're looking at it over time, just in 2020, you saw that number shoot up after George Floyd was murdered. So not only did a global pandemic drive stress, anxiety, and depression threefold from what they normally would be at that time, you saw that the murder of just one person and this was after a number of stories, but that day, when they have markers of that day, stress, anxiety, and depression going up, you saw that exaggerate um, about five or 6% even higher. So what that means is that people who were already incredibly stressed, anxious, and depressed from something that was impacting their daily lives, whether they could go outside and do a lot of the essential jobs that they were supposed to do, whether they could care for their children, whether they could themselves go in and care for family members, which is a part of especially Black community to check in on people like family, like friends. So that social fabric was being eroded. Whether you could, again, do your job in a way that wasn't exposing you. So that, that concern that you're being exposed in some of these jobs that are more often than not Black and Brown 
staffed, whether you could utilize the transportation, again, that, that dense, for a lot of people, densely populated urban transportation for folks, whether you could utilize that. These lived experiences are telling why you see these threefold or these, these exaggerated numbers. And then to look and say the same problems that have been faced for centuries before today, even in the midst of a global pandemic, are things that we have to now contend with again. We're talking stress, anxiety, and depression that tell a story that are beyond what these numbers can say. It is, it is a begging of a country to please just let us breathe. Like in, in every sense, through COVID and George Floyd, like can't, is breath okay? Like, can't we just breathe? Is it sufficient for us to have life where we can just breathe? Is that okay? Like to be able to ask that question gets at this issue of humanity in which folks have been dehumanized for so many years. And so now this question of can we just live, can we breathe is what we're asking government, it's what we're asking state sanctioned employees, it's what we're asking our neighbors. Is it okay that we just, just breathe? And so that, again, it's, there's a story that, that those numbers just can't tell, but when we're talking about how both COVID and George Floyd have impacted the health and well-being of, of Black folks, it is, it is in every turn, it is a thought about every system around the Black person. Can they be trust? Can I even go about living my life? Is it okay for me to breathe? That, that is something that I believe is on the heart and minds of many Black folks in this past year. And beyond the added stress of the pandemic and of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and you know others throughout not just 2020 but before what other obstacles and this might go back to you know an earlier response you gave but what other obstacles are black communities facing that keep them from accessing physical and mental health care yeah and I, I think it's really important that you know we we say it in a way that ensures where the, the blame is put, right? So the, that there are systems that create barriers to Black access, right? So it's sometimes Black folks are seen as why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z to improve yourself or to better yourself? And so I think it's just really imperative that we are naming that these systems aren't invisible. There is no invisible hand that's coming in and, and acting on these policies and practices. These are actual real people, there, there are oppressive forces that are coming out of policies and practices from actual people, from actual legislative bodies that are um, making it challenging for Black folks to access that care. So I, I say that because when I think about mental health care in particular, and we're connecting it to systems that already exist, the three elements that are most pervasive for Black folks in accessing quality care is um, access itself. So whether or not folks within a certain community can get to services, if the insurance would allow them to get those services. So that's whether or not you can even get to and, and, and have the services, the first question. Utilization is the second. So whether folks would uptake it, if it's even available. So is there a reason for folks not to trust a system is a question. 
Is there a reason for folks to trust the system? Would you want to spend your time engaging in something that has historically been challenging for you and, and folks who look like you is a question around utilization. So do we even want to use it if it's available? And the third is quality. So even if you can get to, and even if you decide to use, what's the quality of that care? Is it that folks who are often in urban areas or who work with folk of color um, are typically not as skilled or as qualified because they're not reimbursed or resourced in the same way? So those are questions that are absolutely part and parcel of the mental health experience that are, are not so different from um, general health care as well. But certainly, I think one of the most major components to think about is that utilization. So do, do we want to trust some of these systems, which again, from birth or before birth, right, have reified this idea that, that Blackness is not worthy of um, care, and, and that's shown when you come into the world. If you're at a hospital setting, it's shown when you go back to a house, when your house is not the same quality as others. It shows when you go into your school system where it's overcrowding and asbestos. It shows up in the water that you and your family are drinking. It shows up in every single system because every single system has been permeated and is created through racism. Continuing on with the topic of mental health, a lot of times it's discussed that there's a stigma around mental health care in general and receiving mental health care. And so why is it important to discuss mental health for Black individuals, Black communities uh, in, in particular? Sometimes people see a focus on certain groups as a problem. Um, Black Lives Matter as, as a reference point became fairly divisive for some people because the assertion was, well, don't all lives matter? Shouldn't we consider what all people need? And I think when I am answering this question, I, I keep that top of mind because we would want mental health care to be accessible for everyone. And, and wouldn't that be a vision that psychologists or those in the mental health field want? What I always tell students, mentees, um, anyone that I work with is that you have to understand all of the predictors to our outcomes. And you have to understand the mediators, you have to understand the moderators, you have to understand the context. So we're very dorky. We have these huge models of all of these lines and arrows that are predicting all of these various factors that'll impact mental health care. And once you understand that those those models don't look the same across groups. And once you understand that groups writ large have certain common factors, so maybe not everyone in that group feels the same way, but if a culture by and large has a stigma within it that says we don't necessarily wanna take our business to folks outside of our communities because when we've done that in the past, so that's where that, that bracket comes in, right? Where, where you start to unpack, well, why is it that there's a stigma, it's not just because a stigma exists, it's because when I have said that I needed to pause in the past, I've needed time, I've needed a break, whether historically through slavery that resulted in greater lashings, maybe even death, separation from your family, right? That, that resistance to perhaps working or to being in a space where you're just continuing on meant that you're not going to be able to persist that day. 
So whether we're talking historically, more contemporarily, where we're seeing folks who are fired as a result of quote unquote being lazy or fitting the stereotype that Black people aren't able to achieve because they needed a break. I think that this means then that Black folks have learned, okay, I can't take my concerns and worries out the house. I can't take it to people. I have to keep that within. When I've done that in the past, those consequences have been too great. So I need to ensure that I'm strong, that I can take everything that that person is, is doling and dishing out. And that means that there are no opportunities to talk to providers who are by and large white. I don't have that opportunity to talk to them. There's no pipeline set up for me to talk to folks about these problems. And so I'm gonna keep it in, I'm gonna keep it to my family. There are more systems at play, like if we talk about what's going on in our family, that Black children are separated for their families more often than not. Or that sometimes when you do say, I'm not feeling good if we're talking about the health system, that people don't believe you. So there are all of these components that when we do actually tell people how we're doing, it's either not believed or it results in greater consequence. So all of those historical components are part and parcel of the actions or the beliefs that, that Black folks have toward mental health treatment. So that, that's how we think about how the stigma plays out and why it's important to then say, if Black folks have a certain way that they think about or have learned about or operate in the space, it's really important for us to think about the approach differently. They have different mental health outcomes. They have different predictors. So why would we not think about this model differently and how we need to reduce stigma appropriately, provide different types of health care, provide new ways of thinking about mental health treatment differently? My last question for you is what can be done better in our communities to advocate for necessary change? Put your money where your mouth is, is my biggest push for this. So um, during COVID, we saw a huge shift uh, for care online and that a lot of those services were uh, being provided either at low or no cost and the idea, especially from some of these larger policy groups like the American Psychological Association, is to really keep that wave going. How do we continue to figure out care that may be across state lines, that may be online? Like, what are, what are the ways that we can utilize the services that exist to a growing population of people interested in this care? How do we bring in new people who would otherwise not be interested, but because of the, the reduction and challenge for access, the greater... Um, quality, then would they utilize these services? And so we're starting to ask those questions. And, and um, by and large, if, if we can fund those services, if we can think about how do we keep low or no cost services to folks, how do we create policies that will allow us to, to break down some of these barriers, then we're going to be able to increase that utilization for folks who are looking for services. So I, I think putting the money in the policies that keep these practices going is, is incredibly important. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.